Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we discussed Chicago's riverfront architecture, chatted about teaching math, and learned about our city's booming film industry. All this plus Size Matters, The Trump Diaries, and Are We Cool Yet? only on the Lumpen Week in Review for September 27, 2019. Kiefer Dunn spoke to Ward Miller and Patrick McBriarty about the history of Chicago's riverfront bridge houses as part of Lumpen Radio's partnership with the Bridge House Museum. Dozens of these bridge houses dot the Chicago River. What is their history, and what is their future now the river's usage and topography has changed? Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn airs the first Saturday of the month at 2. We've got Patrick McBriarty here in the studio and also Ward Miller uh, from Preservation Chicago. So um, let's, let's get those guys here uh, and, and let's, let's get into some of that history. So uh, we're here, and, and uh, Patrick, welcome. Sure, I'm Pat <laughs> McBriarty. I'm here, I guess, because of that book that I did, Chicago River Bridges, in yeah. 2013. Yeah, and, and, and Ward Miller. Thank you. Well, yeah. Proud to be here. Yeah, so let's, let's talk river history and, and bridge house history specifically. Um, because as, as I kind of noticed, I, I, I could imagine this being... Uh, the, the life of the bridge tender when when before they were locked when they went up and down uh, it's I, it seems like the sort of thing that could be relaxing I could imagine gazing out these windows and watching the boats go by um, but I imagine that's more my romance uh, <laughs> than anything else certainly yeah and certainly it's not a job for the faint of heart I mean just walking up those stairs all the time uh, yeah it's yeah. not I mean what, you know I, I said to myself when I turned 50 what I really want to do is carry 150 pounds of gear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, not, life goal. Not not a job for a heavy smoker. Uh, <laughs> no, certainly. No. <laughs> Although I'm sure probably some of the bridge tenders in <laughs> years sure past were. were. Um, but yeah, the the bridge tenders themselves would have almost kind of lived in these bridge houses. Now we're in uh, the southwest corner of the Michigan Avenue Bridge, and this bridge house was not used per se by a bridge tender okay. or or bridge operator as they call themselves now. Opposite us, though, on the east of us, that bridge house and then the one to the north of us are the two that operated each half of the bridge and still have those controls in there today. And those are the ones that the operators will use today to open and close the bridges for this dance of these river trips where the boats come up and down the river. And, and I think it's a cool location because I like to call it these bridges are kind of stuck in this skyscraper canyon. Yeah. So, so often the bridge houses themselves are quite unique and interesting and each the architecture of each bridge house will tell you about the era of when the bridge itself was built. Right. Um, but they're often dwarfed by the fabulous ar- architecture around Chicago and have been underappreciated. So I'm, I love the fact that Ward's here and that uh, yeah. Mijay has taken on this tender house project to maybe activate some of these bridge houses that are barely used or not really used at all yeah. other than, say, we have the, we're in this you know Friends of the River right. McCormick Bridge House Museum that started in 20, 2004. Right. So you know listeners might be aware that these Chicago bridges are sort of famous, right? I mean they're they're in popular parlance drawbridges, right? But sure. but not exactly, right? They're double bascule. Is that the technical term? <laughs> right. And and in architectural and engineering uh, circles, we are known for our Chicago type bascule bridges, yeah. which is a particular design that city engineers developed around the turn of the last century, in the early 1900s. And so Cortland Avenue is the very first example of that Chicago type bascule bridge, and those yeah. have evolved over the years and. 
uh, Michigan Avenue, when it was built, I think was like the widest and maybe largest bascule bridge in the world in 1920, uh -huh, which we're wow. coming up on its 100th anniversary Amazing. on May 20th of next year of so 2020. this bridge we're sitting on right now? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So it's, 100, it's not going to collapse on it. No, <laughs> no <laughs> infrastructure is in trouble. Uh, I don't know. We I, should ask the preservation. Let's <laughs> not go there. Well, no, you can because actually uh, two years ago I was on Chicago Tonight talking with Phil Ponce, and I knew he was going to ask that question. So I talked with uh, Dan Burke, who's at the Bridge House, or excuse me, at the Chicago Department of Transportation, and I asked him the same question. And you know, the city, and, and particularly the Department of Transportation, loves the bridges. Um, they're part of our industrial heritage, and so they are main, making sure the bridges are maintained. Uh, they get, uh, by federal law, have to have a full engineering inspection every two years. And they've been, on the last 10 years, on a uh, process of repainting at least four bridges each year. And when they do that, they'll do also some minor structural and repairs, if, if those are obvious at the time, and, and do yeah. those. But but that's why, say, Grand Avenue was taken out, right. was it had some structural issues and it was going to need to be replaced. And so now we have this interim bridge there. And then the hopes will be there will be a, a nicer, uh, probably fixed bridge, not as interesting to, right. to me who loves playing with Tonka toys like these bridges. <laughs> and Chicago Avenue, too. That's another one that we just lost. And, you know, uh, right. uh, we're at one of the great intersections of the world, as far as I'm concerned. You know, when you come to the Michigan Avenue Bridge and you're at Michigan and Wacker, you see the Wrigley Building, you see the Tribune Tower, 333, buildings of Mies van der Rohe, and the London House, which we were uh, yeah. very instrumental in saving and repurposing and getting landmark a number of years ago. Uh, you're at one of those great corners of the world, and it's a beautiful outdoor room that just uh, always gives me a head rush as I <laughs> uh, walk over the bridge. And, and, you know, it's also interesting, we're at this very point where Fort Dearborn uh, was constructed just outside the doors here. Right. And, you know, this is sort of the beginnings of Chicago as the river, you know, once sort of uh, came as we know it and then sort of turned down Michigan Avenue and created this huge delta, you know, yeah. down at, which emptied out into Lake Michigan at the Art Institute, which is so mind-boggling to think of, you know, these large uh, municipal projects that happened, yeah. you know, in the early days of Chicago. Right, before um, this, like, half-mile landfill right. that's extended <laughs> exactly. to Lakefront East. You know, right. this used to be a peninsula, almost, if you will, yes. and it was a great strategic fort site. And you still get some of that... Uh, that, that rush of, of, of energy when you come to this point. Mm -hmm. it's, it's really remarkable. And of course, for years, that was railroad yards east yeah. of us, right. Illinois Central tracks, but uh, really an amazing and dynamic intersection sure. and, and a beautiful bridge. And I think we should be celebrating this bridge next year uh, maybe in the same way we celebrated the water tower a few weeks ago on its 150th anniversary. Yeah. Well, and let's let's talk about that industrial heritage a little bit because you know if I could ask just like a, a very naive question, sort of. So we have these drawbridges, <laughs> and and, and but, probably and, and the most in the world except for Amsterdam. Yeah, which is incredible. And and so, but you know the 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 this kind of naive question that uh, you know I, this is this is excellent radio hosting right here. Why why didn't they just make the bridges taller? I'm sure some listeners will be wondering why we have these things I well, mean well sure and and I'll often talk about that in some tours or things like that sure. the, the it's really because of the flat prairie landscape and this y-shaped river which of course the y is a municipal symbol mm -hmm. for Chicago representing the Chicago River was it made no sense to do a tall fixed bridge because of the price of real estate and this flat landscape so if you can imagine taking 
say, the Skyway toll bridge over the Calumet and putting that in downtown Chicago to give the ships that were coming through Chicago when it was developing right. that 120, 130-foot right. clearance would be just unconscionable. Right. And so, and they did try tunnels, but those were kind of dark and dank, and people didn't want to go down there. Um, so it ended up that swing bridges initially were one of the major bridges from about the 1840s up through the turn of the century, and then those were had to be replaced and take that center pier in the middle of the river that they would yeah. pivot on out of the waterway for the larger steel ships coming in and out of Chicago. So sure. that's when kind of the bascule bridge came along and the city did a few experiments and right. then got so frustrated. One of the chief engineers said, we got to come up with our own bridge and designed it right. um, with help of other other right. folks on his staff. And so the two leaves are kind of counterweighted so that the, the right. motor force is, is kind of minor uh, when they're lifting the bridge. Right, mm -hmm. so we've kicked around this word bascule, which yeah. is a French word. Um, which means seesaw or teeter-totter. And it goes back to probably medieval drawbridges, maybe even before, where you know these wooden bridges over the moats were so heavy, they found if they used a counterweight, uh, it was a lot easier to open and close sure. them. And so that it usually has an implication of use, the use of a counterweight to open vertically um, to open and close the river, and it might be a single or double leaf bridge, depending on which location on Chicago River you're I see. at. And 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 sort of this was a working waterway. Absolutely. And, and so I'm so the ships would come in from the lake. They'd be bringing uh, either you know I've, I've read William Cronin's Nature Metropolis. So I have some idea of what they had on board. Sure, grain Timber, and lumber, gra and, grain, right. all these things. We still have a lot of sand and gravel barges that that go to the. Um, uh, the pl the uh, concrete plants that uh -huh. are along the river, uh, and those those barges though are now low enough to get underneath the bridges. Yeah. Um, but yeah, at, the, at its height in about 1887, we had 21,000 ships coming and going in and out of the Chicago River. Yeah. And and if you can imagine, each year? that's each year, right? That was each yeah. year. Okay. Wow. That was the height of it, uh, and then the Calumet started to pick up more after the fire of 1871. Um, and some of the industry started to move down there for larger lands as they scaled up. But still, you had these swing bridges at the time that were opening maybe as often as three or four yeah. times an hour. Uh, so you would get what they called bridged and, and <laughs> had, an ex had an excuse to be late for a meeting or, yeah. or an appointment because you couldn't get across the river. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right, right. So, uh, and, and, and in 1920, when this bridge here at Michigan Avenue was built, this would have been the first bridge to greet and uh, and say, uh, you know, aloha to the ships leaving yeah. the Chicago River coming in and out. Right. And so it opened probably uh, over 2,000 times that first full year of operation. Right. And uh, so and it, and it carried about 50% of all traffic yeah. back and forth because we didn't have Lakeshore Drive until 1937. Yeah. Uh, and then Columbus Drive in 1982. <laughs>
Kenya spoke to the head of the Chicago Film Department, Kwame Amoaku. Amoaku talked about what needed to happen to make Chicago the premier destination for filmmaking in the U.S., how Georgia kickstarted everything, and why no one really wants to shoot in Atlanta. News from the service entrance with Mario Smith airs every Thursday at 2 p.m. Of the many things that I want to ask before I, I get into the, the heart of this discussion, I recall many years ago when you were when you were really just kind of like the behind the scenes guy, um, just doing your thing and, and, and setting these movies up, not even the location scout guy yet, just being on set and, and being a presence. Um, this one day I was downtown and I happened to walk past Joe Mantegna and I said, hello. And he said, Hey buddy, how you doing? Hey, and he stops and he talk. We talk. We have this long conversation. He's talking about Chicago, talking about sports and all that. And as I was leaving, I went, do you know Kwame Amoku? And he was like, oh, yeah, of course I do. Hey, Kwame's the greatest. Every time from that point on, whenever I saw a set or people filming, I always asked if they knew you. And the amount of respect that you get from these cats on the street that are filming these TV shows, I don't know if you know it. But I'm telling you, it is amazing. The no, no. people's reaction to you, to your name, is is a real thing. Well, I, you know, honestly, it's it's because I grew up in the film community. You know, 25 years working in the business, and it's more like a family than anything to mm-hmm. me. So it's like a when when you spend 12, 14, 16 hours a day with people uh, for 20 something years, you know, eventually you develop uh, either they're gonna love you or they're gonna hate you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just been blessed enough for everybody to really be, uh, you know, good, and they always give me positive feedback, and that's a lot of support. So it's it's a good thing. I know I know you as location scout. Um, tell me about the importance of of particularly in a city like Chicago finding a unique spot to film. Well. Um, you know, it starts with the script. I mean, that's the whatever the intellectual property is. That's what kind of drives the bus. So, you know, you get the script and then you figure out, you know, where where is the where are these things in real life? Where can I find this house? Where can I find this this grocery store? Where can I find this place? And then you proceed to kind of go out and just kind of beat the bushes and find that stuff. You know, the best scouting to me is happening when you're out with your camera, driving around on the street, putting eyes on everything. And it's like a detective uh, story. You know, you, you, you track it down. I like to say I, I turned it to Columbo. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I track it down, and I, I enjoy the hunt. I enjoy finding these locations. I enjoy knocking on someone's door and, and asking them to come inside their house and photograph everything. And, uh, you know, them having that faith and having that trust in me and then coming back with 250 people to, you know, set your house on fire. So, All right. Like that's you know that's you know it takes a lot to be able to do that to be able to convince people to to participate and uh, I always enjoy it and I always enjoy you know kind of spreading around some of that that economic benefit to as many people as I can you know with these location fees and and the the money that's made in the community in general you know uh, when, when we do a big show. You know, we have to have a place to eat. We have to have a place to put extras. And oftentimes, those are the churches and the, the um, schools and the things that are around the area that we're shooting in. So and a lot of times, you know, the person, they need to get food, so they're going to go to a restaurant that's in the area. 
so it's like an economic benefit to the, to the neighborhoods that we're shooting in, and I always enjoy doing that. Now that you got this new new role, um, do you still have aspirations to act? Because what people may not know, <laughs> you are one of the most famous actors in the history of the city of Chicago. Case in point, <laughs> case in point, how many times a day has someone looked at you and went, were you in barbershop? You know, it's a little bit harder for them to recognize me from that because that was like 260-something pounds ago. Word. Uh, you know, I did a lot of that stuff when I was bigger. So it's a lot It's a lot harder for people to recognize me from a lot of that stuff. But some of the stuff I did after I lost all the weight, I still get some, some recognition from. But, uh, you know, I don't put anything past But right now, I'm, I'm all about this, this new role and how I can, you know, help. I'm really getting into the the aspect of public service mm-hmm. and, and what it means to be a public servant. And uh, I enjoy the fact that, you know, the city can oftentimes be seen as uh, something that taxes you on a regular basis. You know, like when you hear a city agency and they communicate with you, usually it's, you know, to collect some type of payment or to penalize you for something or, or whatever. Something so negative. Mm-hmm. Right, right. But for us, in D-Case, which is, you know stands for the Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, we're all about uh, giving the city experiences that enhance them, cultural experiences, uh, music, art, uh, film, you know, all the, all the things that enhance life. So just to be a part of a department that is about bringing joy to the city and bringing you know, educating people and giving them culture, you know, I'm excited about that. Well, one of the other things, too, there's a movie that was filmed here uh, a few years ago now, Doom 3. Um, <laughs> I, oh, hey, man, I, I, do, I do my research. Yeah, yeah, no, that was that was quite an event, yeah. And that was a wild time because the, the star right. of that movie was, it's like a major international movie star like and he the was, Tom Cruise of India yeah exactly and he was getting hunted yeah. down they had people like online like he's here he's eating here he's walking down this street it was right. crazy but considering an international movie like that are you looking to do more things like that to have big gigantic movies film here in town I mean absolutely I you know my message is to the film community is that you know we're open for business and that that goes from the smallest independent movie to the biggest budget movie you know we've shown that we have the capability to adapt and work with you know projects like the scale of transformers the dark knight wanted um you know big projects i think ever since the blues brothers it's been demonstrated that you can do big crazy stuff here and we're the kind of city that can work with you in order to, to accomplish that stuff within reason of course speaking of the blues brothers that would be my favorite movie filmed in the city proper right like ferris bueller's day off is with netka wherever else john hughes decided he didn't want to be in chicago to film a uh, barbershop is on that list it's right on on the nine you know on exchange just in right. right around where i used to live so i have a special affinity for that flick but the blues brothers might be my favorite chicago movie that i, I think it's I think it's great because it kind of shows a lot of the different neighborhoods and a lot of different aspects mm-hmm. of the city. And I think some of the scales of the stunt work uh, were phenomenal. Just for it, for its time, you know, some of the most insane car chases ever filmed. And it's a then and now movie, too. Because if you look at it now, 
And I remember seeing it in a theater then. Chicago has made many changes across the, the, the scope of where that movie was filmed. Uh, but a bunch of where it was, where it happened is still oh, there. Yeah. So oh, yeah. I oh, think yeah. it's, I think th- that's why it's so timeless, right? The tracks over Absolutely. Lake Street mm-hmm. aren't going to change. The, the House of Blues, what are the, the Marina apartment, City. Marina City, like Kingfish yeah. is still launched there. Launched a car out of uh, Marina City. That's so dumb. Yeah, Calumet Fishery Bridge Jump is still there. Yeah, mm-hmm, yeah, it mm-hmm, is. Mm-hmm. It sure is. Um, uh, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, they they made me make a list, Kwame. Um, I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they're not listening, but then again, I hope they are. Thank you for making me actually think about these things before I do yeah, what I normally do. Office is always. The press office is always listening. Ah, that's so, good. Oh, you have a list of questions, so I can't ask anything that's not on your list? Uh, not yet. No, it should be fine. It should be okay. <laughs> hold, hold on. I got you, though. Uh, uh, oh, um, are there any parts of Chicago left to film that, that we have not seen on either television or in a movie yet? I mean, I think that with the amount of production going on, you know, people have been scouring the city for all kinds of places to film. So I think it'd be hard pressed to find a, a place that hasn't really been uh, captured. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's parts of the southeast side near the Illinois Indiana border that I, I, I hope get a chance to shine. I think that's a very interesting area. It's like not like any other area in the city. Like I mean, the Calumet the, Park. Yeah, that area. It's near so the, nice. The, it's, the it's, beach it's, there. There's like five people out there. It's so great because yeah. like nobody knows about it. <laughs> exactly, and, and just the area itself, it, it kind of reminds you of a of, of a, um, a harbor town mm-hmm. almost, with the, mm-hmm. with the amount of emphasis on shipping and industry. But then you have houses there and whatnot. So I think it's just an interesting look. I, I'd like to see that a lot more in the films. Um, we were Kwame Amoku. He's the director of the Chicago Film Office. Michaela Blaze is here as well. Michaela, ask a question that's not on my list. I'm about to. You just said you dropped 160 pounds. How does that happen? And congratulations. 200, 200, 260 pounds. What? How, wow. Amazing. Yeah. Kudos to you. I'm sure that w- was a Herculean effort. Um, so can you, do you mind talking a little bit about that? I know that's not but, film office business, but I, I think, well, no, it's fine. I think yeah, that's I mean, amazing had, and wonderful, and, and, and I'm interested. I had a gastric bypass surgery in 2003, and I just never looked back. That coupled with uh, kind of re-educating myself about food and um, you know processed food and, and staying away from refined sugars and all of that, and, and also um, exercising, working out on a regular basis just to keep yourself uh, strong and physically fit. So what? There are these pictures of him working out, like these videos and stuff, and he looks like he's going to kill someone because he is so into it. Mm. And you're like, oh my god, I hope he's okay. <laughs> he really looks mad. He's on right the now. edge right now. And he looks like he might Grind really. Out, man. <laughs> Grind out, bro. But that's great. I, know I, I mean, it. you have to do all of it. I think people don't really understand. Just getting no, the surgery does not. There's still there's still some no. people that are severely overweight and they've had the yeah. surgery. Um, you got to do the work. Yeah, you got to do the work. It's, it's, Congratulations. It's the yeah, the work has to be done in order for you to, to, to stay healthy. Mm-hmm. All right. It's definitely so, not a silver bullet. Wait, I have one more question. Okay, go on. Um, so do you all, like, go to conventions or something and seek out films, or are you just fielding no. the calls from all the folks, like, that well, are 
Cause I, it used to be a time where we'd have to go out and solicit that kind of thing, but now what, this is the age of tax credits, right? So Illinois has one of the most aggressive tax credits in the country at a 30% rebate. Oh. Right? So for every million dollars you spend, you get 30% of that back. Oh. So that's why the studios are flocking here. That's why all the companies are coming here to shoot because of that I tax credit. That's why Doom 3 There's was here. Chicago Fire, Chicago Police, Chicago and them, Chicago's right. other departments. Chicago and them? Chicago. <laughs> right. None of those shows would be here if it wasn't for the Illinois tax credit. That's what's driving production here. And who, who, tax credits you know are driving production all over the country. That's what. That's why Georgia has a huge... Georgia is the number one filming location in the country right now. Mm. And it's all Atlanta, yes. Right. Atlanta, right. It's all because of their tax credit. Because otherwise, why would you come to Georgia to film? Like, why would you, <laughs> what, you know what I mean? Honestly, like, why, no what, slide, would attract you, yeah. what would attract Marvel and all these big companies to Georgia? Like, the only reason they're getting it is because of the tax credit. Fascinating. Hmm. Do you know who, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, like, who, uh, whose idea that was? I'm going to look back oh, in the well, political... It, it, no, I mean that you know that's been a way that that states have attracted business of all kinds by sure. providing tax breaks and tax credits. So uh, Georgia was one of the first. Louisiana was one of the first in it. So that's why Georgia is the number one family location. Louisiana comes second, and then we come third. Hmm. Yeah, I just want to know which legislator Atlanta. like was like clever enough to push that through. Uh, well, I'm I think find Ken, out. Ken, Ken Duncan is the one that that brought Get that through in the, in the city of stuff. I'm correct. I believe that's that's who was responsible that bill. Yeah. Um, before I I, I because I know you got to get the, the 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 you know people on the phone to tell them that I'm ready. Um, <laughs> I am wondering what the goal is now that you are at the helm of the Chicago Film Office. Uh, what is your goal? What do, what would you like to see done? Well, I have three major priorities. The first one is um, infrastructure. Um, the reason that we lag behind Atlanta at this point is because of lack of infrastructure, lack of studios and, and places where people can shoot. If we had the infrastructure, we would we would, we would crush them. I mean, you know, Chicago's a much more appealing city to shoot in than uh, Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, honestly, we're, we're, we're way, way flyer than Atlanta. I mean, that's, that's just a fact. That's a fact. So, I agree. Um, uh, you try to get that infrastructure built. Uh, people are talking about building stages. Uh, I don't know if you heard about the whole common stage. I was going to ask you about that. Right, yeah, that's something that's under consideration that we're trying to work towards uh, any way that we can be of assistance in making that happen. We're, we're definitely down for that type of economic development in the neighborhoods. So, um, and Cinescape is expanding, too, right? Cinespace. Aren't they making Cinespace? Are they yeah. making a campus over there or something? Or did they already do, they were going to close off some no, streets and they make actually a whole have, thing? No, they actually have a, a, a new campus at little in Little Village at 31st and Kenzie. Oh, they're, yeah. they're expanding their studio there. Um, and uh, there's other talk of coming in and building other studios. So that's kind of like my first priority is to kind of encourage that because that's what we need to grow. Mm -hmm. And my second priority would be workplace development and uh, education, trying to create a, a, a pipeline for the labor from the underserved areas. Uh, because one of the things about the tax credit is that there's a bonus when you diversify your crew. So if you can prove that you made an attempt to hire a diverse crew, you get more of a tax credit. So it's a rare, so this, this definitely, um, there's a, 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 a encouragement, there's a incentive for yeah. the companies 
to look for minorities, but the problem is that there's not enough in the pipeline. So just working with CTS, working with programs like After School Matters, Free Spirit Media, Cinecares, Marwin, trying to create a, a, a workforce pipeline that gets kids interested in the business and trains them up and, and makes them able to enter the industry. And not only just enter the industry, but be able to create their own intellectual property and be job creators as well, just not workers or laborers. <laughs> Welcome to the show. I'm standing outside the co-prosperity sphere here on Morgan waiting for Kyle. And this episode will be... What's up? Oh, come here. Okay, uh, yeah, park the truck. Don't park. There's a railroad tie in the back. Pull it out and slide it in front of the back tires. It'll come to a full stop. Uh, okay. <laughs> Uh, serious carbon monoxide stuff going on yep. with this truck. <laughs> That's not good. I know I I know I kept falling asleep in front of red lights. Whose pickup truck is this anyway? That's a friend of mine's. I mean, what are you, what are you doing with it? I've been delivering filing cabinets all over the city. Why filing cabinets? Because it's the safest way for people to keep the facts safe from alternative fact people. Oh, you mean like Documents, birth certificates, passports, stuff Facts like that. Facts of life, conversations, photographs, doodles, recipes, mm. all things. See, filing cabinets mm. can't crash or be hacked or manipulated by anything that isn't a crowbar or the key that opens it. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't a hard drive do the job? Hard drive? Are you nuts? Uh, do you have any ideas how easy it is for someone with advanced computer knowledge to get inside of one of those things? <laughs> hey, Janice Joplin, I bet all the recipes that Mars Brewing has are on some dumb computer somewhere. Is yeah. it any surprise at all? That we live in an age Kyle, of just, Orange Man and the Patriots cheating uh, their way into another Super Bowl. The whole society is becoming undertow. Yeah, I know. It does feel that way. I just, at least the Women's March was a positive example where the nation can go, you know? It was more than positive. It saved my life. How do you mean? Uh, the carbon monoxide leak in the truck nearly killed me a bunch of times. I was constantly being resuscitated. So you were in the march? I was delightfully trapped in it, actually. I was doing my part and handing out filing cabinets. That's awesome, Kyle. I mean, not very cool for the environment, but your best effort is good enough, as always. You know, I, I don't want to ruin the show or nothing, but I gotta ask, why do you sound so depressed today? Well, an overwhelming sense of dread. Uh, you know what? There's, there's no time to wallow. You can donate, you can volunteer, you can show up and get involved. You, know. you can make America not like Undertown. Right. Now repeat after me. Make America not like Undertown. Make America not like Undertown. Make America not like Undertown. Make okay. We should write a song. Yeah, okay.
what's the best nation? Donation, as it was famously said. Now, I do a lot of things for people, and I don't just write songs for all you jokers out there. Back to Radio Free Bridgeport with the homeboys. This week on the Trump Diaries, impeachment. But first, Trump sues his accountant trying to block New York State from gaining his tax forms. Trump attacks a 16-year-old girl speaking at the UN. Trump pressured Ukraine's leader eight times to investigate Joe Biden. Trump stopped aid to Ukraine unless they acceded to his wishes, violating federal bribery laws. And the fast-blooming scandal is finally the last straw. Nancy Pelosi announces impeachment. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 973, September 19th. A potentially explosive whistleblower complaint involving sensitive matters is said to involve multiple discussions between Trump and foreign leaders. The complaint was deemed as critical and of urgent concern. The White House is refusing to turn it over to Congress as is required by law. It involves at least one instance of Trump making an unspecified commitment to a foreign leader and includes other actions, including deals with Ukraine. Trump's lawyers have pressed Ukraine to help them with their campaign against Joe Biden. Trump denied he made any promise to a foreign leader calling the complaint, quote, presidential harassment and tweeting if there is, quote, anybody dumb enough to believe that I would say something inappropriate with a foreign leader, he did not finish that sentence. Mitch McConnell said he would now provide stage for an additional $250 million in election security funding. McConnell has been stung by taunts that he is Moscow Mitch, had repeatedly blocked Democratic efforts to bring election security legislation to the floor. He had also stifled efforts to pay to update voting machines in states. Trump sued his accounting firm Mazars USA and the New York State District Attorney to block the release of eight years of his personal and corporate tax returns. Trump's lawyers made the novel argument that he cannot be criminally investigated while in office because the Constitution effectively makes sitting presidents immune from all criminal inquiries until they leave the White House. The lawyers admitted their argument was without precedent. New York State is investigating the hush money payments made during the 2016 election to Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal. Both women alleged they had affairs with Trump. In a related story, a federal judge blocked California law requiring presidential candidates to release their tax returns in order to appear on the primary ballot. U.S. District Judge Morrison England Jr. said he'd issue a final ruling soon, but took the unusual step of issuing a temporary injunction saying, quote, there would be irreparable harm without temporary relief for Trump. Day 974, September 20th. It has been revealed that Trump pressured the young new leader of Ukraine eight times to investigate Joe Biden's son. Volodymyr Zelensky, who was elected as a reform candidate in Ukraine, was first called by Trump on June 25th. That is the same day that Robert Mueller was telling Congress that Trump had not been cleared of obstruction of justice charges. During the call, Trump repeatedly pressured Zelensky to work with his lawyer, Rudy Giuliansky, to deliver political dirt on Biden. Trump told Zelensky that Ukraine could, quote, improve its reputation and interactions with the U.S. by investigating a Ukrainian gas company that had ties to Biden's son, Hunter, who served on their board of directors. Subsequently, Giuliani met with top Ukrainian officials about the prospect of an investigation. Then, when Ukrainian did not deliver dirt on Biden, Trump blocked at least $250 million in aid that was to support Ukraine's military in its war against Russian-backed separatists. 
Giuliani previously admitted back in May that he had pressed Ukraine to investigate Biden's son and by extension Biden. Quote, we're not meddling in an election, Giuliani told Fox News. We're meddling in an investigation, which we have a right to do. Giuliani also pressured Ukrainian officials to investigate if they and the Democratic National Committee had worked together to harm Trump's 2016 campaign by releasing damaging information about Paul Manafort, who was Trump's campaign chair for a short while. There is no evidence that this happened. Ten days ago, Congress requested records from the State Department relating to an attempt to, quote, manipulate the Ukrainian justice system. In a damaging TV appearance, Giuliani denied asking Ukraine to investigate Biden before admitting that he actually had. In a tense interview with Chris Cuomo, he asked Giuliani if he pressed Ukrainian officials to pursue investigations into Biden's son. The transcript of the interview reads as follows. Giuliani, no, I actually, I didn't. I asked Ukraine to investigate the allegations that there was interference in the election of 2016 by the Ukrainians for the benefit of Hillary Clinton. Cuomo, you never asked anything about Hunter Biden? You never asked anything about Joe Biden, the prosecutor? Giuliani, the only thing I asked was how the prosecutor got dismissed. Cuomo, so you did ask Ukraine to look into Biden? Giuliani, of course I did. The Ukrainian scandal that Giuliani and Trump have been pushing also doesn't exist. The Ukraine scandal that Giuliani and Trump have been pushing also doesn't seem to exist. Fed by willful misreporting on the part of far-right outlets and the right-wing tip sheet The Hill, the facts simply don't add up. Biden's son Hunter took a job at Ukrainian oligarch's gas company known as Burisma shortly after the 2014 revolution. Joe Biden at the time was the White House's Ukraine enforcer, and it is true that he forced Ukraine president to sack a prosecutor general as a condition for $1 billion worth of American loans. However, that prosecutor, Viktor Shokin, was widely seen as corrupt and incapable. Biden pushed for the sacking of a corrupt prosecutor for a tougher one. And while it is true there was an investigation into Burisma, that had ceased years prior to Joe Biden's pressure campaign. Trump predictably called the whistleblower complaint involving his conversation with Ukraine ridiculous and partisan. He admitted that he didn't know the identity of the whistleblower, but called it a political hack job anyway. Trump then added, quote, it doesn't matter what I discussed with Ukraine's president, but I'll tell you this, somebody ought to look into Joe Biden's statement. Trump finally called his July conversation with Vladimir Zelensky as totally appropriate, while characterizing it as beautiful. Day 975, September 21st. Trump acknowledged that he pressured Ukraine's president to investigate Joe Biden. Trump then claimed, quote, it doesn't matter what he discussed with President Zelensky and that while he would love to release a transcript of the call, quote, you have to be a little bit shy about doing it. Trump then repeated his false corruption claims against Biden and accused the media of being crooked as hell for not reporting his false claims as fact. Trump said, quote, if a Republican ever said what Joe Biden said, they'd be getting the electric chair probably right now. Trump then suggested he had withheld military aid from Ukraine because he wanted to make sure that country is honest. And, quote, if you don't talk about corruption, why would you give money to a country you think is corrupt? The Trump administration signed an asylum agreement with El Salvador. The deal will force Central American migrants who pass through that country to seek asylum there or be sent back to the country once they reach the United States. California and 22 other states filed a lawsuit to stop Trump from blocking California's authority to set emission standards for cars and trucks. Earlier this week, Trump revoked California's authority, contending the waiver was improperly granted because greenhouse gases don't cause specific local or regional problems linked to traditional pollutants like smog. 
In a bizarrely related story, however, EPA Chief Andrew Wheeler threatened to withhold federal highway funding from California over its failure to submit a report on its implementation of the Clean Air Act. Wheeler sent it later to state lawmakers that claims California, quote, has the worst air quality in the United States, end quote, had failed to carry out its most basic tasks. The letter says California's failure to address a backlog of about 130 incomplete or inactive plans should lead to penalties. The surreal action from the EPA is yet another attempt by Trump to punish that state. California, of course, dramatically cleaned up its air with strict emissions controls on cars and trucks. Trump claimed he could end the Afghanistan war very quickly, but it would require killing tens of millions of people. Trump had made a similar claim earlier this summer, saying I could win the 19-year-old war in a week, but I just don't want to kill 10 million people. His statements drew outrage from the Afghan government, who demanded an explanation. And the new White House Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham said she is unlikely to hold a press briefing. Grisham blamed reporters' criticisms of the previous press secretary. Day 976, September 22nd. New York State judge has ordered Trump to, quote, appear for videotape deposition under oath in a civil suit that involves his security guards. Protesters allege they were assaulted by security guards outside Trump Tower during a 2015 action over the then-candidate's comments about Mexican immigrants. Trump's Twitter attacks in the Fed have had a statistically significant and negative effect on the markets. This according to a new study. Trump's tweets have knocked 10 basis points off the expected Fed's funds futures contract, or about 0.3 basis points per tweet. Politico reported that Trump is telling people he's mad about his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. His son-in-law's push for criminal justice reform has turned up poorly. He promised Trump that criminal justice reform would result in more felons voting for Trump. Quote, he's saying that he's furious at Jared because Jared is telling him he's going to get all these votes from felons. Republicans are circulating new polling data that suggests a ban on vaping would turn voters against Trump. The number of adults who vape living in key battleground states vastly outweighs the margins by which Trump won those states. Vaping has been linked to 600 cases of a serious unknown lung illness and seven deaths in 30 states. Previously, Trump said, quote, we're going to have to do something about it. Day 977, September 23rd, it has been revealed that Trump suspended nearly $400 million in aid to the government of Ukraine in an effort to press them to give him dirt on Joe Biden. Trump's own aides told CNN that Trump's statements and actions were fast becoming major issues. Pressure is now growing on Democrats to impeach Trump. It is unclear if Republicans will abandon him. The British Supreme Court has unanimously ruled that Prime Minister Boris Johnson illegally suspended Parliament, dealing him yet another heavy defeat. Parliament was ruled to still be in session. The Speaker says it will immediately reconvene. Johnson has now lost eight decisive votes on his attempts to take the UK out of Europe. He may be forced to resign. He has run a Trumpist campaign in that country. Angry protests greeted the UN Conference on Climate Change, with Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg lighting into world leaders for, quote, their business-as-usual approach to bringing down greenhouse gas emissions. Thunberg, visibly angry, called the leader, quote, betrayers, and added, quote, the eyes of all future generations are upon you. If you choose to fail us, I say we will never forgive you. Trump's unexpected appearance at the summit was greeted by howls of laughter from the delegates. And finally, Trump later mocked Thunberg on Twitter, writing, quote, she seems like a nice, very happy young girl looking forward to a bright and wonderful future. So nice to see. The 16-year-old responded by updating her Twitter bio to read, a very happy young girl looking forward to a bright and wonderful future. Day 978, September 24th. 
In a major development, Nancy Pelosi formally called for Trump's impeachment. Pelosi said Trump had violated the Constitution and betrayed his oath of office. Pelosi is to set up a Watergate-style committee in a move that dramatically ups Trump's political peril. Trump said in a statement, quote, it would be my intention with the consent of this caucus to proceed with an impeachment inquiry. He is asking a foreign government to help him in his political campaign. That is a betrayal of his oath of office. 206 Democrats now support some type of impeachment action, nearly all of the 235-member caucus. Trump tried to defend himself by saying he withheld military aid from Ukraine, but blaming it on the United Nations for not contributing more to the Eastern European nation, naming Germany and France among the countries that should, quote, put up more money. Trump claimed there was no quid pro quo, there was no pressure applied, nothing. Trump then said, despite the fact that he is trailing all Democratic candidates in the polls, quote, I'm leading in the polls, they have no idea how to stop me, the only way they can try is through impeachment. Trump then called the allegations a witch hunt and said impeachment will be a positive for me in the election. Setting a flurry of tweets, Trump said such an important day at the United Nations, so much work and so much success, and the Democrats purposely had to ruin and demean it with more breaking news. Witch hunt garbage so bad for our country. As for that important day, Trump gave a belligerent speech at the UN that confirmed he was not interested in addressing climate change while denouncing globalists and socialists. Using language that echoed that of Nazi Germany, Trump said, America first, the future does not belong to globalists, it belongs to patriots. Also, federal prosecutors in New York rejected Trump's claim that he has sweeping immunity in a criminal probe while he is in office. Prosecutors argued that Trump is, quote, seeking to invent and enforce a new presidential tax return privilege on the theory that disclosing information and tax return reveal information that will somehow impede the functioning of a president. Prosecutors noted that Trump's position is rendered moot by the fact that every president since Jimmy Carter has released his tax returns before or upon taking office and has never been prevented from fulfilling his obligations as president. Day 979, September 25th. Trump released redacted transcripts of calls that show he demanded that Ukraine President Volodymyr Zelensky work with Attorney General William Barr on corruption investigations connected to former Vice President Joseph Biden and insisted that he investigate a false story about stolen Democratic emails in 2016. Trump repeatedly stressed the U.S.'s role in military assistance for Kiev, but the reconstruction of the call in mafia fashion did not contain an explicit quid pro quo. However, it appeared clear that Trump's withholding of aid to Ukraine to the tune of $400 million was connected to his repeated demands. In addition, Trump's suggestion that American law enforcement be directly involved in contact with Ukraine's government is direct evidence that he personally sought to harness the power of the U.S. government into a politically motivated investigation. Again, the initial conversation came on the same day that Robert Mueller told Congress he had not cleared Trump of obstruction of justice. Trump called Pelosi shortly after she announced the start of a formal impeachment hearing to see if they could, quote, figure this out. Trump said, quote, hey, can we do something about this whistleblower complaint? Can we work something out? Pelosi responded, tell your people to obey the law. A new Fox News poll shows Trump losing to every single Democrat. 52% of voters said they would support Biden. 48% said they would support Sanders. 46% said they would support Warren. 42% said they would support Harris. Just 30% would support Trump. These are the Trump Diaries. Melanie Adcock spoke to Kenneth Hill about his founding and stewardship of a specialist academy to teach STEM to minority students. 
Hill discussed his passion for math and engineering and his conviction that most math teachers in public schools don't know enough about the subject to inspire children. TechScene Chicago airs every Friday at 1. Can you tell us your thoughts on math and education? Yes. Well, first, I love mathematics. I always liked mathematics. Uh, in elementary school, I was a good math student. I grew up in Chicago. I lived in mm-hmm. Outgill Gardens where I had my best math teachers, and then I went to Tilden Tech. So I've always uh, had an appreciation for math, and later I was encouraged to go into engineering by my instructors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and now what um, what led to the founding of the Chicago Pre-College Science and Engineering Program? Can you tell us, um, like, the story around that? Well, basically I founded the Detroit Area Pre-College Engineering Program in 19. 19- 76, and that program is now in its 41st year. Uh, It's doing very well. I retired in 2004, and I failed at retirement, and some people came from Chicago, invited me to come home, and start the Chicago Pre-College Science and Engineering Program. We started at kindergarten. We now have students up to grade 11. Uh, we have annual enrollment of about 400 students. Mm, annual enrollment of 400 students. Oh, and and um, and well, and t- tell us what it's like for you to to have started this organization. Well, for me, I happen to understand that parents basically want the best for their children, and 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 so what we would our goal was to create spaces and opportunities for parents who in the past may not have had the opportunity to be able to ensure that their children will have the extracurricular academic math, science, and computer science activities that would enable their children to be able to successfully graduate uh, with a degree in science or engineering from a university in Illinois or anywhere else in the country. Yeah, and, and what, what, is, what is your mission? Your, your organization has a mission. Let's well, our okay. mission is to prepare kids to successfully complete a science and engineering degree from uh, engineering school. And by, by having extracurricular academic science, math, and computer science and engineering activities, we've been able to achieve that. Uh, we achieved that in Detroit, and we're on course to achieve the same thing in Chicago. But I also want to mention we have a very strong parent engagement component Mm -hmm. because it's our view that when parents understand the children are are better able to deal with the rigors of a college engineering curriculum. Mm -hmm. And that that is a a very unique and interesting mission and program. And and I I mean, I know it's hard for a lot of people for many, many reasons to learn math. And and now, what what are some of the challenges disadvantaged youth and children and teens of color face when they're trying to learn math? It's poor quality instruction. Mm -hmm. And in their various school areas, they just don't have Basically, you you have a lot of teachers who may have have a certificate that will enable them to be able to teach in elementary school, but you don't have, uh, specifically in the communities we're talking about, teachers who actually have the background in math to be able to focus on math. Usually it's a K through eight general certificate. So the teachers do the best they can, uh, but the realities of understanding the system of mathematics 
that will enable them to focus on activity-based instruction. A lot of teachers in the elementary schools just don't have that background. They focus on reading Mm -hmm. and literature, but the mathematics is just... It, it's just not there. And so, so the result is the students end up not appearing to be able to handle it, but mm-hmm. they haven't had the quality instruction that they need to be able to handle it. So it comes out looking as if it's something wrong with the kid. And, and that's not true at all. So. No, it's not. And so, and so, yeah, I mean, and that's, uh, that's important to keep in mind. And so it's good to get an insight from, you know, from your perspective on what, what this is about. And, and uh, now, what if a kid's already a math nerd? What if they just have a knack for it? Are they now an outcast? Are they, uh, you know, in their class? And tell us about that, too. One of the big pluses for our program has been that some of the students who have participated fit the profile you're talking about, mm-hmm. specifically African-American ge- girls or Latino girls who actually like math and become a part of this Saturday program where they're encouraged to achieve what they want to achieve in science and technology. And so this has been one of the big pluses to give them a space where they can actually grow and not feel uh, intimidated. Mm-hmm. That is so important, and that is that is just a a very wonderful thing. And I, and and so I'm I'm glad whenever I think of uh, people who feel different because they maybe like math or maybe like science, and to know that they have a good place, that's just great. That's really wonderful. And uh, well, and then too, th- throughout history, there have there's been a history of black excellence in engineering, and and I thought that we could talk about that a bit as well. Well, we could start with the with the uh, with the pyramids. Right, Egypt is in Africa, Mm -hmm. and the Mm -hmm. people migrated from the south north and built pyramids, and there were pyramids in the southern part of Africa before in the northern part. So they understood the mathematics to build the pyramids because you have to understand geometry and algebra to build pyramids. Mm -hmm. And then as you go through uh, some of the later ones that you may know about is Mae Jemerson. She was an astronaut, or Buford, another one, or the movie Hidden Figures, Mm -hmm. which was significant when it dealt with the women who were involved with the mathematics for the space shuttles. uh, uh, So you've had, uh, you can go to Google now and it will show you the range of African-Americans who have been involved, which is great mm-hmm. because the textbooks some of the kids had when I came along, they had George Washington Carver and as if that was the only person that knew anything about science. So today you have uh, like uh, Shirley Jackson, who's the president of the uh, Rensselaer, and she's a Ph.D. in physics. So you have people on that scale uh, that you just did not have years ago, that were not known years ago. They existed, but they were not known. So I think it's great that we now, any teacher that wants to share this information, they can actually go to Google and, sh- and take them to the library and, and provide that. <laughs> Well, I um, if the listener had uh, tuned in last week, I was off uh, on an adventure to get my uh, uh, 
uh, license renewed, um, mm-hmm. and I did have access to my microphone and my laptop to a certain degree, so I yes. was able to cobble something together. This uh, this really adds credence to some of the the fan the fan conspiracies that DF actually stands for Dindiana Phones. Ah, that's an interesting theory. I guess I can't. I don't want to. I don't want to ruin the surprise no. by speaking to it. Um, so. I'm not going to harp on that a, a, a ton, but I will say this much. Uh, after everything, after uh, a week there, two 24-hour drives, uh, a number of, uh, of uh, drunken nights and antics, antics perhaps, um, some of them fun, some of them rather tragic. Sla- it, a slapstick, slapstick adventure. Well, it turned out ultimately uh, I could just do it online, and I did. Really? Yep. When did you do it online? Uh, well, uh, it's a funny story. I was going in to the um, DMV, mm-hmm. where I'm from, and uh, I had all these documents uh, to prove them. And uh, because of the hurricane, which ended up missing, uh, the thing is the hurricane, everyone knew the hurricane was going to miss, but um, public officials, much like here sure. in Florida, they, they'll take any excuse to just not provide civic services. That's a tradition. A tradition of inadequacy. And so uh, there was a sign-up that simply said, uh, we're not gonna, uh, we're not coming in because of the hurricane. It was a beautiful day, by the way. Um, Sunny, wonderful. I mean, Um, it's beautiful in the eye of the storm. We're out for the hurricane. Uh, Here's a website where you can do this. And um, I did. And now I'm back. Uh, awesome. But, uh, yeah. I mean, you got some of that nice Florida internet. Are we cool yet? 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 The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen radio sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. (laughs) 